This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, an old priest and a young priest. Possession and exorcism in fact and fiction. (laughs) So we are continuing on with our Halloween special in all across October, talking about all those spooky, creepy, crawly things. Um, And one thing that Jules and I have sort of touched on in past episodes, but not really delved into, is possession. Which is very Halloween-y, I think. It is definitely Halloween-y. It's, it sort of features in those films that make you glad that you can leave the cinema afterwards. But there yeah. is the, the delicious, morbid fascination with the whole process. So um, we're going to look a little bit into the background behind it as a concept for fiction. And we're mm. going to look at some of the, I say inverted commas, real life cases. Because obviously we weren't there, we can't judge whether there are any demons present. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, it is a massive thing that appears in many types of urban fantasy, gothic fiction and ghost stories and mm. outright horror. Um, and if you think about it, the idea of an external and often malevolent entity taking ownership of your body, or worse, the body of a loved one, and overriding your or their personality is absolutely bloody terrifying. It is. It's really, really scary. Um, and I think one of the the reasons it's so scary is that I think there have been times in all of our lives when we felt out of control of yes, our own definitely. of our own bodies, or, or felt like there's something else in there that's kind of trying to, you know, sabotage or, or create issues or things like that. And so we can relate to the idea of of having something malicious trying to control us and the fear comes in the idea of that being so wholly encompassing um, that you really have absolutely no control at all. So I think that's why it, it verges on being so terrifying because there's a grain of something which everybody will have experienced on some level or another. Definitely. And, uh, you know, in addition to that, there will have been times where you felt you just don't recognize the you know one of your loved ones yeah that they're acting in a strange or erratic way not a demonic way but just in a way that suddenly you're wrong-footed you you genuinely don't know what's going on but because at some point in their life everybody will either experience some sort of mental disturbance or depression or something like that or Mm. will just generally have a traumatic event and not be the same person for a little while yeah and I do think that trauma and uh, depression and anxiety can can actually feel like that, can feel like a type of possession, both from you know a personal perspective and from a from an external perspective. So yeah, I think there's a lot of depth here in in what's so scary, and it's not just the surface level. Ah, a demon. Um, I think that there's lots of layers to it, so I'm really looking forward to sort of delving into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, yeah, before we before we <laughs> get into the crux of it. <laughs> yeah, th- there are many films and books which have this as a main theme, um, and even more which have it as sort of like a sub-theme or something, a little sideline. Mm. And the idea has its roots in 
both in ancient religious practices and in more recent organised religion. Um, And before we really get into this, we need to say a couple of disclaimers. Yeah. So number one is some of this material is going to be disturbing. Okay. Uh, We are not going to sensationalize... Let me try that again. We're not going to sensationalize the gore. Um, That's really not our thing. Uh, But at the same time, you know, because we're discussing it, we can't shy away from the nasty aspects of the supposed actual cases of demonic possession. Um, So if this is something which is going to be a little bit too much for you, you might want to just skip out on this episode. Uh, But yeah, fair warning, we'll treat it with respect, but we are going to be getting into some fairly nasty stuff. Yeah, and similarly, by necessity, we're going to have to cover some organised religious territory. Yeah. Um, we we you know we poke and prod a little bit at organised religion, but generally we try and be respectful to people's individual beliefs. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, we're also not going to shy away from things where people with certain beliefs have behaved in a way that is actually quite the antithesis of those beliefs in these cases. Mm. So unfortunately, that does mean that Christianity is going to feature large because Christianity is a big proponent of the classic demonic possession. Yeah. Um, and what we talk about in this episode is not what we believe Christianity is, and it's not representative of Christianity or any of its subdivisions as a whole. So, little disclaimer there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's the kind of thing which, you know, from the perspective of, you know, back when I was a, a practicing Christian, if I heard about other Christians doing this, it would shock me, kind of thing. Yeah. Like, this is not what I want my beliefs to be about kind of thing so again we're not trying to offend anyone but we are going to have to report things as they are presented to us there's there will be no sugar coating um so be aware of that um and yeah as always we love to hear your thoughts on this matter uh so please do get in touch with us um via various social media platforms we do love to hear from you with that in mind, let's let's get into it, Jules. Uh, okay. <laughs> let let's start. I feel like we should start at the beginning. So, like, what are the origins of the idea of possession? Well, this is where I personally find it very interesting because the concept of possession was not originally necessarily a negative thing. Mm. It was definitely dangerous and not to be meddled with by the uninitiated. But the origins of possession as an idea are generally very pagan. Mm. So you're looking at things like the oracles at Delphi, um, the hero jewels of various ancient temples in Rome, in Greece, um, even Jewish temples. You know, you have Namar, the, uh, the angel of sacred prostitution, mm. and a man could come close to God during the moments of orgasm by communing with these sacred prostitutes. Now, some of them were slaves, but some of them actually weren't. Some of them were women who went into this role and trained specifically. Mm. Um, There is also the idea of the Maenads of myth, um, which, again, you you can't really say the Maenads who got stayed very, very drunk all the time and and possessed by by Dionysus Mm -hmm. and then tore men apart uh, were necessarily a positive thing, but it definitely appears in myth. And, And then if you look at things like the voodoo ends of of the south of New Orleans, mm. um, where it, it was a sacred religious practice to take on aspects of 
particular gods. I'm not an expert on that. I've read a little bit, but I, d I haven't gone into it. But I, I do know that this is a thing. Um, if you're interested and you get to more information before I do, then I'm, I'm interested to hear what people have to say about it. But so, so basically, yes, it <laughs> it was definitely a a non-organized religion type practice originally, and you d you certainly had it in sort of Celtic Brythonic tribal practice as well, where Possession was an altered state of consciousness whereby trained priests and priestesses and occasionally war leaders would make space within their own bodies for communion with their gods, uh, space for the gods to actually take over and speak through them. Hmm. This is a, an interesting thing and, and I'm just going to sort of um, say this before we kind of go on. It it really is interesting to me to think about the idea that this is something we've been doing for a long time and actually maybe the crux of it comes from the idea of consent yes um because you know as jules has said this is a really ancient idea it is found across the globe i mean you also get it in things you know like japan for instance the the idea of the of the kitsune being possessed by a kitsune but also being possessed by an inugami what's interesting about something like an inugami is that an inugami is you create the inugami and you you create the inugami um usually as a source of vengeance I'm not going to talk about how you create it because it's kind of a bit gross, to be honest. Um, but you create the Inugami, this this dog spirit, uh, in order to enact vengeance for whatever reason. And then in exchange, it takes your body. Um, and that really, really interests me again because it's sort of consent in so much as you've uh, you've agreed you've kind of sold your soul as it were or, or in this case you've sold your body um in exchange for vengeance and this is interesting because obviously there's a lot of sort of mental health things that you could potentially be seeing in that as well and the corrosion of of mental health if you devote yourself to to vengeance or very negative things um but yeah that's the really really interesting idea is that you have all across history this idea of consenting to something else entering your body. But throughout that, and Jules is going to talk more about this as well, the danger behind that. It's not It's not a, oh, yay, well, well let, let's just go frolic together kind of thing. Yeah, this is not a shits and giggles thing, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is partly done to, you know, if, if we're talking tribal culture, it was done mm. to connect a tribe with their their divine origins if you yeah. like or their divine progenitors their divine guides um it was done to access the skill and wisdom and occasionally the the judgment or pre-knowledge of a specific deity mm -hmm. and it's echoed today in many wiccan and pagan practices so for example drawing down the moon where you have the person acting as high priestess on that occasion um will draw the essence of the triple goddess within herself in order for a formal practice circle to take place yeah um and that's a that's a very interesting sort of process to be to be part of um again not advocating that anyone tries this at home <laughs> well it's 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 funny as well because if you think about it you, you get this in christianity as well like yes. let the holy spirit into your heart <laughs> 
leave room in yourself. But I mean, like, th- there's there's elements of that, of the drawing of some kind of other being, greater being, into yourself for your own embetterment. Yeah, the whole thing with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they began to speak the divine language of tongues, etc., yeah, that, that is a form of possession. Yeah. Um, the Bible doesn't frown on all types of possession, just the ones that belong to the adversary. Yeah. Um, basically, it obviously, if you when you do these sort of things, theoretically, you're altering your state of consciousness. Whether you're doing that through meditation and fasting or via the use of certain chemicals, you're doing it in order to shift aspects of your personality, and that is extremely dangerous. Yeah. Uh, it's extremely dangerous, particularly if you have any kind of, let's say, mental vulnerabilities at all, or you know, mm. even if you're at a low spot in your life. So this is not something to be done on a whim. This is not something to be done alone without other people sort of with you. Yeah. And honestly, I would say, leave, you know, leave it alone. You know, there's nothing wrong with a- accessing different aspects of yourself. But I would say the whole sort of idea of inviting something to come in um even if you don't fully believe that the problem is you're creating a change of state mentally and you could leave yourself vulnerable to things that are already you know within your psyche somewhere that you could you know basically don't poke the bear on this one yeah or do it with guidance if that makes sense if this is a religious thing for you if it's a spiritual thing for you do it with guidance um, yeah yeah it's because it's dangerous regardless of whether as Jill says whether you believe or you don't there's there's a number of reasons why it could be potentially dangerous um and and why you know even historically uh as we talked about the oracle of the delphi and 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 so forth these were trained individuals this wasn't yes. this wasn't every day <laughs> Oh well, I think I'll just uh, pop to the shops and then commune with the uh, commune with the gods for a little bit. Um, you know, wasn't an everyday okay. kind of thing. It's like there was a reason why priesthoods trained for years, mm-hmm. and you know they lived apart from the world and they meditated and they fasted and, and you know yes, sometimes they did use chemicals as well. Um, but basically, there's a reason they did that, and that was the idea was that, that you know reaching out to touch the divine would sort of burn the mind of anybody who was not prepared for it Mm, yeah absolutely so you know whether you believe you're actually touching the divine or not if you're just like throwing yourself in there well that's a bit like leaping off the edge of a volcano not knowing whether it's live or not (laughs) yeah absolutely um which i don't recommend not to be honest um so when did when did this kind of this idea this this perspective start, start to shift because certainly as we've said in the past the idea of negative things taking over your mind was also possible. So it wasn't all just positive, and I say positive in inverted commas, it wasn't all just consensual, ah, I'm communing with my gods. You know, sometimes it was a, a bad spirit or I have consented to a, for a bad spirit to enter my mind or I have been um, made ill by a bad spirit, you know. But it was a nuanced thing. There were lots of things. So when when did things very much change to possession bad and yeah. only bad? Um, as far as I can tell, you know, as we've said, there were cases of ill-intentioned and uncontrolled possession in all cultures with mm. the true focus. 
But the true focus of you're possessed by a devil, you're possessed by something that belongs to the adversary. Yeah. Um, largely came with Christianity, and it's noticeable in some of the later medieval chronicles and things that it gets mentioned more. Yeah. So I think it became more of a sellable item, if you like, in the late medieval period. Yeah, because certainly in that, Europe, I think, yeah. Yeah, it is noticeable that as education started to go down, and as more people were saying that women couldn't be educated and as they, you know, because we've talked about this before, women mm. were pioneers in, in terms of medicine and stuff during the medieval era. Um, they were writers, they were poets, they, you know, they did an awful lot of things, um, even if they didn't get paid as well as men did. But as that sort of education went down and as the church sort of grasped more and more things, shall we say, um, mm. it's noticeable that the idea of you know being possessed by a devil became much more popular as an explanation for things. Yeah. So we ha- what we have to bear in mind here is, is this is not me throwing beanie babies at, at Christianity. This is a piece <laughs> of the church being a political body. Yeah. The church itself, not Christianity, the church, is a political body concerned with power and gaining money because mm. money and power tend to go hand in hand. And it used the process that used the organization of Christianity to extend its reach to gain those things. Um, and it did this through changing people's hearts and minds and gaining more control over people's lives. Yeah. So it, it, I'm not saying that there were a bunch of old men sitting around, I think, twirling the moustaches, thinking, how can we how can we oppress the people? But somebody saw an opportunity and somebody else built on that and yeah. realised that they could actually profit off people's ignorance, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the same time, you know, a lot of it was also probably connected to very ignorant misunderstandings of mental illness um, and disability, including things like deafness. Yeah. Again, this is another one where it's a shame that, you know, the... The women's role in medicine got so rolled back mm. after the late medieval period because in the more out of the way places you would have your, your village handy woman or your herb wife whatever your cunning woman and she would know enough to know that somebody probably couldn't hear she would have seen enough babies you know she probably had midwifed the entire village yeah so when you start removing that person, that pillar from from these small little villages and towns, which were isolated and, you know, 30 miles down the road was another country. Yeah. When you start removing that, then you feed ignorance, unfortunately, and someone arrives and they seem okay, and then you realise that they're making strange noises because they can't hear themselves. Yeah. Um, And it's that kind of thing. So we do actually have a couple of accounts sort of, um, early sort of 1500s late to early 1600s whereby you know unfortunately they ended up putting one boy to death by stoning because they thought he was possessed with devils when reading it now it looks like he was just deaf Yeah, and nobody really quite understood that, that, that the reason he was howling was he was desperately trying to hear himself he didn't understand what anyone was saying to him yeah yeah um I, that's it's horrifying um it's especially horrifying to think of it now because <laughs> recently i was talking a little bit about asylums um 
with with my class and we looked at some sort of some cases of reporters and co uh, victorian period and onward who would feign and i say in inverted commas madness in order to be admitted into the asylums to report on what they were like on the inside yeah and the amount of times that this experiment has sort of happened whereby they people have then found themselves stuck even though they've stopped these symptoms. And, and Nellie Bly, a uh, great example, she she particularly wrote about her experiences and said how the conditions inside the asylum that she was in, um, you know, women being chained together, forced to sit in hardback chairs with very bad food, cold water, poor hygiene, and they were forced to sit in chairs and not speak or read or do anything, just sit there all day. Um, she said, that, you know, within a few weeks, you would lose your mind. You would, you would go crazy. This is how you create madness. Yeah, it's the yellow wallpaper, isn't it? If all exactly. you've got to do is sit there and stare at the yellow wallpaper. Yeah. And and the fact of the matter is, is that anyone, anyone at any moment could be, you know, could be diagnosed with madness. Um, at any point, because the, of the way the human mind works, but also because of the way that we understand things and, and how, how much of our understanding and comfort around people is based entirely on social cues. Um, if you miss those social cues, if you don't understand social cues, etc., if you're neurodivergent, even slightly or things like that, it sets people off um, because you've basically moved out of a pattern of behavior that they recognize and because you've moved out of a pattern of behavior that they recognize um they don't know what to expect from you next and so this fear is created now madness and and again i say that with inverted commas um and you know possession have long gone hand in hand um in that you know a lot of the time it was believed that it was caused by a type of possession but anybody at any time could be mad anybody at any time could be going through something or could just be misunderstood in a certain situation and have that label put onto them which is why this fear of possession is and and this this sensationalization of the idea of possession is so scary um, because it's also possible to convince yourself that you're possessed and to kind of descend because of that. I mean, one of the main reasons I don't allow Ouija boards anywhere near my house isn't necessarily because I believe that they work, that if you use one, you might be opening a door into some spiritual realm, but they are conduits of hysteria. Why? Because you set the scene up, don't you? You get ready for it. And then if something weird happens, you start to feel weird and subconsciously you might end up convincing yourself that there is something malicious and that can cause you to do all sorts of things or go through all sorts of things and that's terrifying and pretty much everyone is susceptible to that on some level or another yeah absolutely and as we talk about some real life examples in a minute, you'll see that one thing that every case of possession seems to have in common mm. is somebody misusing, misappropriating or attempting to gain power. Mm. And it's not always <laughs> sometimes 
it, it, it's not always the so-called possessed person trying to get attention either yeah um so yeah we'll, we'll dive into some real life examples some of which will be familiar and some of which won't and this is the part where i think we do our most horrifying <laughs> our most horrifying uh descriptions of things just to warn anyone who hasn't got off the train yet yeah because this this is real life this yeah. is no longer fiction this has happened to people so um let's start with the salem witch trials because this was this one boggles the mind even now yes it does so um mid to late 17th century uh in salem or new jerusalem in massachusetts in america mm-hmm. um a number of girls who of a puritan background as well so they're mm-hmm. coming from a state of being very rigidly brought up very rigidly drilled in religious dogma mm. and being in a sort of high tension environment where everybody watches everyone all the time yeah that's not to say that the puritans were bad the puritans enjoyed things like good food and sex and things but within very specific narrow parameters you had very little freedom yeah and young girls especially had less freedom probably than anybody else um, because you didn't have the cashier of being your own having your own home, your own husband, your own children or whatever. Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, if you were independent, then chances were you, you could be knocked off your perch quite easily in other ways. Anyway, these young girls together with a um, former slave named Tichuba went out into the woods and told fortunes and danced around a fire and probably, you know, <laughs> probably sort of, took off some of their more rigid restraining clothes. I don't think they were just dancing around naked, but these were teenage girls. And yeah. everybody needs to, to sort of break out during their teen years. Um, unfortunately, one of them went back. Well, in fact, it wasn't just one of them. It was a couple of them felt really guilty. It was a, I think it was a young 12-year-old girl, I think, who, you know, that mixture of having done something deliciously wicked and yeah. you know, told fortunes, and, and dance what have, you, what have you and then gone back and gone to church just it kind of caused basically like a somatoform effect whereby she almost went into a catatonic state she had seizures she was very very frightened she thought she was going to hell probably mm. and that started everyone's suspicions off and then Another a girl got she I think she pointed at one of the older girls Abigail, and uh, Abigail wasn't perhaps quite as innocent as <laughs> as maybe she should have been at seventeen years old, and she may well have been having an affair with a married man in town and mm. didn't necessarily want it discovered. We don't know this for sure, but she pointed at someone else and said which, and the hysteria as Madeline was talking about just now took over. Um. The interesting thing about this is that then the whole accusation of witchcraft thing seemed to take on a life of its own. It needed very little prompting from the girls involved yeah. who claimed they were possessed by devils and beset by witches and demons. It, it needed very little of that to keep it going because people wanted to believe it. I think on some level people craved the excitement, the drama. So in the same way that we will almost destructively watch the news now, for bad news, negatively biased as we are. It was like that. And to the point where I think the girls started to believe it themselves. And 
to the point where they believed on such a level that they could contort themselves into positions that you should not physically be able to contort yourself into. Yeah. And this is the other thing is that I think there was in some levels, if you're in that incredibly strict environment and there is a lot of guilt which is laid on you if you step away from that environment, um, the idea of possession is a relief because it removes the consequences from you. Or rather, it, it, it you can basically say, it wasn't my fault the devil made me do it the devil took hold of my body i am blameless i am an innocent and i can understand why girls who suddenly are in who are in real fear of the consequences of doing something fairly normal but which is very much frowned upon in that society would want to believe this so much that it would become a truth Um, yeah Definitely. Um, at, at this point, they summoned uh, a witchfinder, Cotton Martha, Ugh. who came in, and you know, there was Matthew. Ho- no, Matthew Hopkins was Britain. Anyway, Cotton Martha, and basically <laughs> the, the Inquisition of the time. And there's no evidence actually that Cotton Martha was actually a bad man. I think he genuinely believed what he was doing, mm. um, but he was coming from a position again of, I think, looking for religious glory. Which is not a great place to start from when you're trying to investigate claims of witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> because what gives you more glory? Um, anyway, to skip ahead, because we've got others to talk about, I think they ended up hanging, is it 18 women? And then another man was pressed to death under rocks and boards. This is the. I just want to talk about that very quickly, because there's two things which, which always struck me about the Salem witch trials. The first one was, and I cannot remember her name, one of the girls, or one of the women who was accused of being a witch, her own baby daughter testified against her. Yeah. Her own little girl. Now, you've got to understand how, how much hysteria and how much the kind of public pressure you'd have to be under in order to turn against your own mother and say she's a witch and start to spout lies about things that she's been doing. Um, But the one that really interests me is the guy, because what happened was that he actually testified against his wife, saying she's a witch. Yeah. And then once she'd been killed, he kind of snapped out of it a little bit and he went, what the hell is going on? She wasn't a witch. Why have I allowed myself to be caught up in this? Why did I allow myself to be caught up in this sensation? And he redacted his statement. Um, and he, you know, he said she wasn't a witch. None of these are witches. This is this is crazy. Um, at which point they all turned around and said, well, clearly you're a witch. Which uh, the, the logic completely defies, you know, <laughs> just completely yeah. don't understand. Basically, this was sunk cost fallacy applied to murder because... If they'd executed someone and she'd been a witch, then it would have been a justifiable execution. But if they executed someone and she wasn't a witch and it was all just a product of hysteria, then it's murder. Yeah. So at that point, yeah. Um, but he as he w- sort of died very courageously, um, denouncing the whole thing all the way through. And partly his testimony and partly the testimony of other women, including three elderly but quite wealthy widows who sort of were a bit anti-establishment, shall we say, mm. um, finally made the thing grind to a halt by dying, unfortunately. 
And there yeah. are a number of women and men who also died in prison from poor conditions as well. Which yeah, has which to be said, they're not really counted, but you know that happens. Yeah, the the amount of actually, it's an amazing thing if you look throughout history. The amount of witches who who died not because they were executed, but because of the poor conditions that they lived in, um, and therefore it was okay. You know, it's like oh, yeah, like Pitt and Ween, for instance. There were a whole bunch of people accused of being witches there. Uh, most of them, well, all of them were then pronounced innocent after the fact. All of them had died by that point. Only one of them was publicly executed, and that was by a mob after she escaped. And they chased yeah. her down, and they killed her in a horrific way, which I'm not going to repeat here, but you can find out about it in the, the Pit and Ween Witches if you look it up. But most of them, even when they were released, they had been in such terrible conditions, imprisoned, that they died very shortly afterwards. So, um, yeah, it, it, apparently they only really had issue with it if they'd been executed, and then it was like, oh, they were innocent. And even then, people tended to just brush that under the carpet. But the fun fun fact about the guy who was who was pressed to death in his final moments, apparently he cursed the uh, the guy who was in charge. Um, clearly, just went well. Fine, if you're going to kill me as a witch, I might as well have some fun with it. Um, and there's a, that's the reason why actually you don't have a sheriff or, a, or or I can't remember what the exact position is, but there's a position of authority that you don't you specifically don't have in Salem so there's a guy who's in charge of Salem the sheriff but he doesn't live in Salem and he's actually in an, in, in the next sort of town over or something like that because this curse was put on this man who was in that position and from that point on anyone who took up that position died of a heart attack <laughs> apparently so even now in America I'm not sure whether they've rectified it recently but for a very very long time it was no one takes up that position in Salem because there's a curse on it because they had killed all these innocent people it's a bit like being defence against the dark arts teacher isn't yeah it, it is <laughs> super super is Okay, uh, I'm going to move us on to Michael Taylor yeah. Michael Taylor is a case that happened during 1977 in uh, sorry, no, not 1977. What am I talking about? 1974 in the UK. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed how both the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church approached what we now call deliverance ministry, um, which other people will probably understand as exorcism. Because yeah. that is still technically a service. It's just the, the, the hoops you have to jump through now in order to acquire one a very very stringent because yeah. of this very specific case yeah. so for example the possessed now need to be examined by i think two psychiatrists at least and mm -hmm. a doctor and you have to have the opinion that you obviously have to have written permission from either the holy see if you're a catholic or from you know your superiors if you're part of the anglican church yeah so and basically they will do anything they can not to do an actual exorcism it's very very rare now at least among those particular christian organizations anyway michael taylor was a butcher living in west yorkshire in 1974 his wife stated to the christian fellowship group that she and her husband belonged to that she believed her husband's relationship with the leader of the group marie robinson was carnal in nature hmm um, so it w And it does look like he may well have been having an affair with this woman. Um, Michael admitted that he felt evil within him and 
later on had an argument quite publicly with Marie Robinson who screamed back at him that it was quite strange in the way he sort of snapped and and verbally attacked her anyway he received absolution um, for the evil he felt within himself but after that he became even more erratic uh, in terms of his temper and things Mm. and you know his, his wife made several several complaints about it the local vicar and other ministers performed an exorcism on him between the 5th and 6th of October in 1974 at St Thomas's Church, Gorba, in Yorkshire, West Yorkshire. This was headed by Father Peter Vincent, who was an Anglican minister, and aided by Methodist uh, minister Reverend Raymond Smith. It was an all-night ceremony, and they invoked and cast out at least 40 demons, including incest, bestiality, blasphemy, and lewdness. Exhausted, they finally allowed Taylor to go home, and we're talking a really grueling ceremony where he was restrained and exposed to cold and God knows what else. Yeah. Um, They allowed him to go home, even though they felt sure that there were three more demons within him, including insanity, murder, and violence. I love that they didn't... Like, (laughs) those should be the first ones, guys. The first demons you get out of it should be like that. That's that should be a priority. <laughs> Lewdness? Are you serious? <laughs> anyway, please continue. Uh, Taylor went home and brutally murdered his wife. Um, I'm going to be explicit here. He attacked her with his bare hands, pulled out her tongue and her eyes, and almost ripped her entire face off. He then murdered their poodle. The police found him sat outside his home on the road, covered in his wife's blood. He was obviously arrested for murder. He was later acquitted because, on the grounds of insanity and sent to Broadmoor Hospital for two years, which is a secure psychiatric hospital. Mm. Um, eventually, he was released. In 2005, he was, caught, um, he was arrested for indecently assaulting a teenage girl. A week into that prison sentence, he was serving for that. He exhibited the same behaviour he'd been exhibiting right before he murdered his wife. So his prison sentence was changed and he was put back in a psych ward, which he remains in to this day. Um, anyway, this case, as, as well as completely changing how you go about deliverance ministry in the UK, also inspired the somewhat dicey film, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Right. So there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just horrific. It, it is horrific. Um, and I'm not taking <laughs> not taking any pleasure in this. I find this very interesting because it has provided inspiration for a lot of things. I think because this isn't somebody who is actually a bad person. This is somebody who is severely disturbed, which, you know, is not necessarily his fault. But if he received help to start with rather than uh, prayer... And that's mm. not to say prayer is a waste of time. It's not. But he should have had psychiatric help and evaluation as well, except that in 1974 there was less of that about. Yeah. Um, then his wife might still be alive. The thing that gets me is that we also don't know how much, whether, you know, perhaps it he would have, because of his condition, he would have murdered her anyway. But how much we we can't know whether his actions were triggered by this um, exorcism, 
whether he fell in with the with the idea of the possession, the idea that there were still demons within within him, um, and that maybe was the the last you know click into place for him to to do these actions. We don't know whether he would have done it anyway if he if he'd just been to the pub that night instead. You know. Yeah. Although I have to say, I imagine twenty four hours of yeah. sleep deprivation, uh, withholding food and water, uh, poor temperature, so being treated to to cold and hardship, mm. and then having people just basically pray at you. Yeah. Pray at you or pray something at something within you to cast it out. Now imagine that that's somebody who perhaps already has something like schizophrenia yeah. or something else. I, I'm i not saying it was definitely the tipping point, but I can't imagine it possibly helped at all. Yeah. And that, yeah, and I guess that's the thing, is we don't know. We we just don't know. Um, but we have to entertain, you know, the possibility. I should also, a uh, little thing, little thing here, little aside, um, because possession is so linked with insanity and things like that um and because of the way that that's also presented in a lot of media um there is this idea that anyone who is who suffers from like schizophrenia or things like that are automatically violent or things like that because also of the way that the behaviors are linked up particularly in media um just as a general reminder that people who suffer from uh, mental disorders, including things like schizophrenia, are far, 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 far more likely to be the receivers of abuse and to be abused than to be violent. Yeah, absolutely. You, you absolutely can have someone who breaks out and is violent or even murderous under mental health issues mm. but as madeline says it's not a it's not a done deal absolutely it's not yeah. a done deal i mean i personally think probably anyone who is murderous and violent and things like that w- does have a mental you know there's something wrong with you as in yeah. mentally there's something wrong with you not we don't always know exactly what it is but there's something which is not quite right but the idea that people who are mentally unwell are therefore dangerous um, has been perpetrated, I think, by certain movies and certain ideas, which are which these things are all linked into. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's look at an older case. This is the Loudon possessions. This took place in 1634. Okay, so we're going back a little bit. We're going back a few hundred years. Um, I feel really, really sorry for the priest in this scenario. Basically, a group of nuns claimed possession after having illicit sexual dreams about a handsome young priest called Urbane Grandia. <laughs> See, it sounds really, really funny, doesn't it? And then you keep going with this story. Oh, no. and you're kind of like, oh no, this is not good at all. Um, this, this has all the hallmarks. Obvious sexual repression, um, perhaps low education, lack of understanding and someone who was really in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, during exorcisms performed on them for having these lewd dreams, uh, they convulsed, blasphemed, and made sexual motions towards the priest. And apparently, this, these sort of sexual motions 
sort of inspired the creators of The Exorcist for some of the scenes in that. So there's that. Mm -hmm. um, Grandia made a desperate bid to clear his name that, you know, basically he wasn't the devil and he hasn't possessed these, these poor nuns mm -hmm. um, by exorcising them himself. Uh, he did this and he tried them with a test in Greek where he spoke to them in Greek. Now, I know this sounds like a weird thing to do, but classic Catholic exorcism would have you believe that demons understand all languages. Thereby, if somebody can reply in a language they don't know mm -hmm. and could not have possibly learned, then in theory, they're possessed by the devil. It seemed that somebody wanted the handsome, charismatic young um, urbane grandia out of the way however because the nuns were coached to reply um, even though they couldn't most of them couldn't have learned greek some of them may have known greek anyway we don't know exactly who they were mm. and uh, anyway grandia was imprisoned and tortured and eventually burned at the stake it's horrifying which is horrifying uh, uh, and a large number of the nuns sort of recanted and tried to defend him but they were ignored so somebody played off uh, basically what amounted to some female hysteria about sexual feelings, which they thought they shouldn't be having, mm. in order to remove this young, handsome priest from, well, from everything, from the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's terrifying. Yes. And, I mean, that's true evil right there. Yes, the, the, the manipulation of everything going on. Instead of having someone who is a bit more understanding and saying actually dreams of a sexual nature are perfectly normal and part of your vows towards chastity, towards God, are learning to understand and accept these feelings and move past them. Yeah. Which I think is now what's cancelled amongst Catholic nuns, but yeah. was obviously not at the time. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Anyway, would you like to field the next one? <laughs> yes. We have talked about her before, but I think this is appropriate for you. Yes, yes. We're going to talk about fairies. Yay! <laughs> uh, Bridget Cleary and the Changelings. So, um, I just have to remind myself on the date, but I believe it was uh, 18... Was 1895. 1895. God, it's always later than I expect it to be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the thing that really gets me, is that it's always later than I expect it to be. I mean, this is, you know, nearing the end of the Victorian period. Yeah. Um, so Bridget Cleary, um, born uh, in Ireland, was murdered by her husband. Um now this it's it's a really interesting uh case particularly because of the way that it was reported and how it all came about. Now in England when it was reported in newspapers it was reported as the last witch burning. Yeah. Um and in Ireland uh it wasn't about witches it was about changelings. So the idea was that her husband, and it wasn't just him, it was his family as well, um, they murdered Bridget and they said that they did it because the 
the person they murdered was actually a changeling. So fairies had come and replaced Bridget uh, with a changeling. Um, and so he, he claimed that he didn't kill his wife, he killed a changeling, and that by killing the changeling, his own wife would be returned to him. They had this whole story about going up to a certain uh, to a certain hill and looking out, and his wife would ride past on a white horse. I mean, it was very Tam Lin, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, now, we don't exactly know how she died either she was burnt to death or she was her body was uh was set on fire after her death um but up until up until that point she had been um starved i believe tortured to a certain degree um and she'd been what's the word uh when you're not tied up uh, when you're locked in a room incarcerated yeah yeah or imprisoned <laughs> imprisoned thank you yes i'm sorry now the this is a really really interesting case for a number of reasons um because we're not exactly sure why um this where this idea came from or whether her the family actually thought she was a changeling and also, if they did think she was a changeling, why they thought she was a changeling. There's a lot of books about this, um, and there's a lot of ideas about why um, uh, she she was killed. Um, on some levels, they think that for that she, she, there was there was a possibility she was having an affair, or that her husband believed she was having an affair. Some people think it was actually to do with religion, um, in that it was between protestants and catholics she was one um, or she was veering towards one set of beliefs while her family were the other um it's yeah it, it gets quite messy um what is very largely suspected is that she did fall ill so we know that she was actually quite a successful young woman uh, she had her own. She had her own business. She was making her own money. Um, she actually had. Just to give you an idea of how recent this was, she had a sewing machine. Um, yeah. It was actually a Singer sewing machine. Like I have a Singer sewing machine right now. <laughs> yeah, I've got one of the old-fashioned ones. I think yeah. Take someone. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was. She made dresses and things like that. She made clothes. Um, she didn't have any children. So she'd been married for about, uh, it was just shy of 10 years. I think it was sort of nine or eight years. Um, but they didn't have any children, which at the time people, you know, there would have been questions as to sort of why. Um, so she went missing, um, at around March of, of the year that she died. So, uh, uh yeah, sorry. Yeah. Of about 1895. Um, she had been six, a uh, six, sick. Um, now there was speculation of whether the sickness was some people think it was tuberculosis. Um, it was probably bronchitis or something along those lines. Um, she was sort of visited by a doctor, um, and the doctor believed that the illness was you know basically said it's likely she's gonna die so she was also seen by a priest um 
who I think read her her last rites. Um, but then she got better. Um, and this is when the sort of the torture began to happen. Uh, we know that her family threw urine at her. This is all documented because they were all questioned. Um, and yeah, the basically she just hadn't returned. She'd gotten better, but she was kept indoors. She went through a number of rituals um, with the whole family and then she was killed. And it was a few days later that people started to notice, hang on a second, um, where is she? She's not returned. And people began to search for her and her husband, Michael, uh, said, oh, she's been taken by the fairies, but I'm I'm waiting for her to be returned. Um, and then they, they essentially, they finally found her corpse um, around the, the sort of the 22nd, I think it was. Um, and nine people in total were charged for her disappearance. Um, obviously her husband being one of them, but I think also the priest might have been in on it as well. Yeah. And it, this isn't exactly an isolated case, not even those latter days. There were cases of, uh, there's one in particular I'm thinking of, where a child who most likely had cerebral palsy was killed in an attempt to send the changeling back, shall we say, and for the mm. child to be returned. Um, the two women went to trial, but it was so clear to the judge that they had genuinely believed what they were doing that he did not press charges against them, believing that the loss of the child was a great enough punishment. Um, it, it's really, really sad. But, I mean, you did at that time in Ireland, you had people who were hungry, people who were basically living in, in huts and hovels right next to places like Dublin, where everything had moved on a couple of centuries, and yet you had people still still living like they had centuries and centuries before in the most extreme poverty and ignorance. Yeah. Um, it's it's very disturbing, but it is an interesting chapter in, in the, the look at possession as a negative thing. Yeah. I think one of the particular things that sort of strikes me um, is that we know she was sick and we know that the doctor went to see her and gave her medicine. And according to his his own reports, his own statements... Um, her husband Michael refused to give her the medicine. He wouldn't give it to her. Yeah. Um, because he he didn't have faith in it. Um, and the pre and he called the priest, and the priest found her alive, um, but in his own words, agitated, um, and didn't and 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 basically didn't say you should be giving her the medicine he actually kind of allowed michael to do it basically saying oh well some people you know they have different ways of fighting this kind of illness and things like that um i believe um yeah and and michael himself even said this is an actual quote I've got in front of me. People may have some remedy of their own that might do more good than doctor's medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this obviously all went to trial. Um, and yeah, I think actually most of the charges were dropped. Um, but I believe that 
there were a few who obviously were kind of sentenced to I think most of them were sentenced to hard labor yeah um but yeah the thing that really gets me about this case is the fact that we we really don't understand whether the family were gripped by hysteria or whether there was something actually really there was under there was something underneath it all um you know whether this was premeditated murder which they then fell back on folk beliefs to try and you know get out of it um or whether they they actually kind of wanted her dead and were maybe even hoping she would die and then she didn't um and that combined with a number of other things they allowed themselves to believe um yeah. what had happened but it's a really frightening case yeah definitely okay um this is probably going to be the most famous exorcism case that most people will have heard of even if they haven't heard of it under this name and mm. that's because it actually inspired the book and the film the exorcist this is the case of uh, robbie roland doe uh, now this is a pseudonym to protect the anonymity of a 14 year old boy at the time mm. and there are a few little discrepancies in the story which we'll come up to but we're looking at sort of mid-1949. Uh, Robbie grew up in a German Luther Lutheran family. Lutheran? Lutheran family. <laughs> he developed an interest in Ouija boards after his spiritualist aunt introduced him to one. Mm -hmm. After her death, uh, the family experienced a lot of pa paranormal activity in the house. Now, in possession terms, this is known as the infestation phase where nothing has really quite taken root yet. But it's things like furniture and small objects being moved without anybody touching them strange smells strange noises in the night strange reactions from family animals um that sort of thing mm. and it then allegedly led on to full possession many of the f the effects of which were seen and later exaggerated in the film the exorcist yeah so maybe not a full-on head twist but certainly twisting into strange contorted positions that you shouldn't really be able to do without extreme pain yeah um what i find interesting about this is that it so luridly appealed to people's imaginations that it, it set up its own sort of series of urban legends hmm. and after inquiries were put into it it was found that it, you know you have things like the priest who allegedly tried to exorcist robbie um went mad and disappeared from from sight well that didn't happen at all he didn't go anywhere <laughs> Um, I'm still he, here. <laughs> Robbie was actually diagnosed. He was held in a, a, a psych ward. He wasn't held in the house. And uh, psychiatrists believed him to have some sort of mental disturbance, but they weren't mm. sure which. The entire thing lasted only a couple of weeks. And then afterwards, Robbie had no memory of it at all. But it had been so grossly sensationalised. Yeah. Um and, you know, we, we don't really know who this person is, but we know that they probably, that they, they existed. Uh, we know that um, some of these things allegedly happened. We don't know what the paranormal things were or whether people started feeding into their own, yeah, in, into their own hysteria and things. Um, it, it's like during the first attempt at an exorcism where you had the young priest and the old priest, which is where you get that from. <laughs> um <laughs> Words like hell and damnation and things were supposed to have appeared in raised red letters on the boy's body. 
um, during the exorcism itself, Robbie is supposed to have broken free and broken the priest's nose. Um, to be honest, if it was like many exorcisms are described to be, I no, don't really blame him for that. Yeah. Um, and, and there's lots of other disturbing stuff. But in actuality, probably about 70% of it didn't happen. You had a teenage boy who exhibited strange psych-type systems. A Catholic priest was consulted. He may well have believed it was demonic possession. The psychiatrist believed it was psychiatric. He was held for two weeks in a psych ward. Um, some kind of deliverance ministry was administered. And then he emerged from what can be a, a relatively common thing amongst teenagers, whereby you suddenly get, suddenly get an influx of hormones. You get a short period of time where you act very, very strange mentally, and, but to the nth degree. Mm. And then everything sort of stabilises a little bit and you go back to, <laughs> to acting a bit more sort of rationally. And, you know, he was released, went back to his family and then lived a very unremarkable life, apparently. So so there you go. That is the real story behind The Exorcist. And it's not as nearly as disturbing or exciting as the film. Yeah. What's interesting, and we'll, we'll talk about The Exorcist in a minute, um, is the fact that, you know, all of this inspired a lot of things. And then The Exorcist, when the film was released, it created a new, not movement, but a new sort of... Um, fear People hysteria were on the look- yeah they were on the lookout for cases of possession as we'll see from this this final case that i've put down yeah. as an example um and that's of annalise michael who yeah. was a german girl um and in <laughs> you know she was born in 1952 and at age 16 so sometime later she started shaking uncontrollably and saying she was, was seeing demons she was diagnosed as having epilepsy, but her devout Catholic parents believed her to be possessed. The church refused an exorcism. Six years later, permission was finally granted. So the family kept petitioning for an exorcism. They were that convinced. Um, I think she was largely held under house arrest for those six years. So that's very disturbing for a start. Mm. Uh, the bishop who came in exorcised her twice a week for a period of months and this included things like uh hold having her locked up in her room restrained to the bed exposed to extremes of temperature particularly cold um with holding food withholding water and you know, obviously the process of exorcism itself and it, she wasn't being treated she had uncontrolled epilepsy for god's sake Whilst being so, told that it was all it was all demons. Whilst being told it was all demons. Um, she eventually died aged 23 of starvation and exposure. Uh, this gave... Well, this inspired the film The Exorcism of Emily Rose. It also inspired a book called A Head Full of Ghosts by Peter Tremblay, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, reading between the lines, the two cases are very, very similar. And that book in particular sort of... It's the sister of the person who was exercised, leaves it at will, you know, this person died. And I genuinely don't know whether this was my sister trying to get attention initially and then actually there was something going on or there was something going on or, you know, my parents just lost their heads kind of thing. Yeah, It's a very disturbing book. (laughs) But yeah, essentially, when you look at it like that, I mean, if you're looking at sort of your child and you're keeping them locked up, you're keeping them tied to a bed, you're 
not letting them be warm, you're withholding food and water, you're basically torturing them. Yeah, for months. For months. Years. Years, in fact. So, yes, it's very disturbing. And th- this is where you really have to do things like apply Occam's razor, where the most likely explanation is, is probably the one that's correct. So things like demonic possession should be so far down the list, you shouldn't be leaping straight to them. I think, and this is where I will have a bit of a pop at organised religion, in the sense that it primes you, or absolutely can prime you, to want to see the absolute worst, because Mm. then you have demons to fight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's also... um... I have come across, whilst watching sort of documentaries and things like that, there are actual recordings of Annalise Michael. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there are accounts of her saying nasty things, doing strange things. And again, I have to stress that any human being under the right conditions, or the wrong conditions... Will, resu- will start to act in bizarre ways which do not follow social cues. And this doesn't even take much. It doesn't take much at all. I mean, okay, let's p- I'm going to throw up an image for you just to really, to really emphasise this. Imagine you're sitting on a beach, right? And you're sitting on a beach and you see a guy walk right past you marching towards a certain point he gets to a certain point just a little bit of a distance from you he looks sort of agitated or things like that perhaps you follow him to make sure that he's okay and he just stands by the water and he starts screaming and swearing and waving his arms around you would probably be freaked out Now let's look at it from his perspective. Let's say he's a paramedic or something like that. He's had a really tough day. Perhaps he's, you know, seen several people die. He's got something building up inside of him. He needs to just sort of let it all out. He goes to a secluded spot so that he can just scream out his rage and his sorrow. This is all something we can understand. But again, taken out of, you know, perspective, um, it, it looks crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Now imagine adding six years of constant torture of one type or another, even if it's lovingly meant, yeah. on top of that, and being told that you are possessed. Most yeah. people would start to believe that they were at that point. Yeah. On top of, you know, untreated epilepsy. Yeah. Which is, again, fits are scary. Like, that's yeah. scary on its own, even if you know what it is. That's scary. If you... It's scary from the outside and it's pretty damn scary from the inside. <laughs> exactly. So even knowing and understanding I'm going to be, I'm okay or, or things like that, or I can expect this, I know what this is, you know, that's scary enough. Being told it's completely out of control, out of your control. It's completely, um, you know, it's caused by something diabolical, which is trying to drag you to eternal damnation. I mean... That's a type of torture onto itself, even before you add on top all of the physical tortures. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, um, this is definitely a worthy uh, entry in our spooky horror season. Yeah. Just for that alone, I think. 
Yeah. Okay, so we're going to look at a few examples of exorcism and possession in speculative fiction relatively quickly because we have touched on a few of them, but yeah. I think some of them are used in interesting ways. Um, yeah. Obviously, The Exorcist was kind of like the blueprint mm. in many ways for this to be in speculative fiction. And weirdly the producer of the exorcist the man who wrote the book and then you know they went on to the, the person who did the film especially you know received so much criticism from religious groups because they didn't want to be misrepresented by this one very sensationalist thing he actually did it because he wanted to frighten people into going back to church i'd heard that actually a lot of the people who were in it regretted it because of all of some of the stuff that happened afterwards well yeah i i i think that was a thing it did become a cult classic and i don't know if you've seen it but it is a very very disturbing film particularly if you come from a catholic upbringing yeah yeah genuine chills on the back of your neck thing i mean for a long time it was banned in cinemas and i think it only got re-released in cinemas during the 90s because i went to see it on the re-release and it had been heavily edited to the point where parts of the plot didn't make sense because they cut out some of the most graphic and disturbing bits. <laughs> um, and I, I went and saw it at a Halloween um, at Aberystwyth Cinema, which was a tiny little two-screen affair back then. Mm. And even then, even though the plot literally didn't make sense because they cut out massive chunks of it, it was just really, really disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> so I can well see how back in the 70s that would have absolutely acted on on people's imaginations particularly if they were more leaning towards very very strict religious dogma yeah absolutely it's like i always think of it as like the jaws of speculative fiction it's like the people who made jaws really regretted it because of this fear and and the consequences that that have had for sharks and stuff like that yeah. Um, so I always, whenever I think of the Exorcist, I'm like, oh yes, the jaws of speculative fiction, where they made it and went, oh dear, actually we've we've sensationalised something which is really dangerous. It's like, yeah, there is there is absolutely a lesson in there with, you know, are you saying what you're really intending to say with the, the thing you're writing? You'd probably get away with it more now because mm. we're we're slightly more desensitised to that kind of very visceral horror. Yeah. Um, but certainly in its day, it was, you know. Uh, not a not a great film in that yeah. respect. Um, um, the exorcism. Say, oh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say that. I was just going to say caveat emptor here. Um, I've never actually seen the exorcism of Emily Rose. <laughs> no, I've seen the trailers, um, but I didn't want to see it for two reasons. First of all, I when I first saw the trailers, I didn't want to see it because that kind of s- stuff terrifies me. Um, I don't actually watch a lot of horror movies or anything like that. Um, uh, I'm not big on it. I don't like jump scares. I don't like things like that. I like sort of creepy, creepy sort of stuff, but not that kind of thing. Um, but actually, as I learnt more about um, Annalise Michael and what she went through, I I kind of got angry with the exorcism of Emily Rose because the the premise of the exorcism of Emily Rose is so so far as I understand, you have the priest who's in prison. Um, and he's basically saying, yes, she died, but she died in peace, as it were. And she was possessed, and what we did was right. And yeah. I will stand by that. And that angers me a lot, because as a concept, it's a great concept. But because it's based on a real-life event of a of this woman who was so badly abused 
by her family, even if it was well meant, and by, you know, people within the church who allowed this to happen, I I don't want any kind of version of that story to be made out like they did something which was right. Because they didn't. They I absolutely say, didn't. Yeah, I, I avoided it for the same reason. I didn't want to see that packaged as entertainment mm. rather than if they played it as a courtroom drama where it was a case of some someone's genuine beliefs coming into conflict with the harsh reality that actually you've committed a murder, I would have been more willing to give it a go. But because it was framed in that, no, this was definitely some you know something eldritch horror that happened. Then yeah. I was I wasn't on board. Yeah, and again, the concept is good. I can understand, I completely understand why the writers might say, oh, okay, but what if it had been real? That's a good story. But the fact is that they packaged it as a true, as based on a true story. That's yeah. how it's packaged. And that's where the kind of this, the misleading elements come in. In the same way that Macbeth is based on a true story, you know, <laughs> <laughs> except it's not, you know, it's been so totally, you know, so totally changed that now no one actually knows about the real King Macbeth but we know about the play Macbeth. Very few people know about Annalise Michael and what she went through, but they know about Emily Rose. And in some ways that has forgiven the actions, the real life actions of these people who allowed something horrific to happen. And I will say this, even if she was possessed, even if she was possessed and they wanted to perform some kind of exorcism on her, it didn't need to be like that. She should have been getting medication. She should have been in a proper institution if she, if required. You know, this shouldn't have been a months after months after months affair. And I don't agree with exorcism. I really, really don't. Um, and I'm saying if she had been possessed, which I don't think she was. I think she was just an incredibly ill young lady who was very, very badly treated by her family. Yeah. Agreed. Um, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, I only have eyes for you, sees <laughs> titular character Buffy and Angel acting out uh, the tragic love story of two ghosts who are basically trapped to haunt Sunnydale High School, thanks to the Hellmouth, mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, it was a teacher in love with a student. It was, well, you say that, but I mean, we're talking the 50s, it was a young teacher, it was a student who was 18. And yeah, it's okay. not great, but also it's it's not you know we're not talking child abuse here. We're talking okay. the student was male, right? As well, which you know, I'm I'm not seeking to justify this. I'm saying this was a genuine love story, and it was obviously not right. They were they they should have waited till after high school, and then years later when he's developed a bit as a person maybe seen if there was still something there yeah but and anyway, she's not that's... a figure of authority um, but um that's yeah. not that that isn't what happened and that's not how they played it and of course uh he ends up shooting her mm. in the story uh because she breaks it off she knows it's wrong she breaks it off with him he shoots her and then he's so horrified that he's killed basically he was trying to threaten her into getting back together with him again mm. not great that, not and then he shoots himself and then he shoots himself because he's so horrified he's killed the woman he loves. Um, and because of the things that have happened between Buffy and Angel, Buffy ends up taking the the position of the male student who killed the person that he loved. And mm-hmm. Angel, who is now evil again, takes the position of the 
the teacher mm. and they manage to actually resolve the ghost story so the ghosts uh, get to say their goodbyes to each other and they're free but you know it really sort of freaks things up even more for Buffy <laughs> I, I like the way it was done you don't have to like the ghost story because you know what these things do happen and they're not great and the way that happened it was going to be a tragedy no matter what but I like the way they utilised that tragedy in a way that let you explore the nuance and the, the complications around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet still making the main character really suffer. <laughs> yeah. That's a really, really interesting way of doing it. Yeah. I kind of... It, it <laughs> yeah, I've not watched it, but now I'm, I'm kind of curious to kind of see where that, that is. Um, okay, so next level, ne- next possession. Possession by ghosts. We're moving into possession by ghosts rather than demons at the moment. We've got to talk about I belong to the earth. Yeah, we have to. Uh, Everybody which, gets possessed. <laughs> Everybody. I think the thing is, it's this huge pattern that is reworking itself again and again and again in the, around this one small Yorkshire village. It's always yeah. Yorkshire. <laughs> and yeah the only person who really stands outside the pattern is, is M and mm. she's therefore because she stands outside it she's the only one who can really break the pattern as well Yeah, and, it, it, and again living out the tragedies of the past mean that the characters all really suffer and they're all vulnerable to it because you know um, Emlyn and her sisters have, have recently lost their mother yeah. And their father has recently lost his wife. And so in true ghost story tradition, they're very fun- vulnerable to the supernatural. And moving to this place, which has this huge pattern, in, um, they just set the entire thing off worse than it's ever been before. It's it's really interesting because it differs from things like, you know, the exorcist and stuff like that, where essentially what's happened is that demons have purposefully forced their way in or tricked their way in. Um, and then in I Belong to the Earth and, you know, potentially in the, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, um, it's like people have fallen into a, a slipstream. Yeah, definitely. There's there's something within that echoes the things that are going on outside yeah. that links them together, that makes it easy. I mean, you definitely have malevolent entities in I Belong to the Earth. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think that definitely and i belong to the earth you have at least two malevolent entities that are very much trying to take over yeah um and then but then you have kind of other people as well who it's you know as you say it's like there are two things occupying the same space and so they've sort of merged and because of similar circumstances they're going in the same direction and that's influencing you know there's an influence there which is being caused because of that yeah absolutely yeah so um in in a way i've said this before but i belong to the earth is unlike any of my other books i think Mm. in that it was me working out this this one central issue and this one irritation i had with the packaging of a certain novel (laughs) as a love story (laughs) Yeah. Uh, when in my opinion it's not a love story at all um it's about you know the destructive power of not governing yourself your your emotions and not adding some rationality to the whole thing yeah so um 
yes, that was me getting that issue out there. And then the characters were kind of like, so what do we do now? And I'm like, but you're done. You've had a story. And I'm like, no, no, we're not finished yet. <laughs> We've got other things to do. <laughs> so I think it it doesn't read like any of the other books in the series. And sometimes I kind of regret that because I feel like maybe I'm not serving my readers very well. But having said that, no reader has ever complained and said, I liked what you did with I Belong to the Earth, but I hate the rest of the series. And they, ha or, and they haven't said, I love the rest of the series, but I Belong to the Earth was a ropey book. So I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's just me. It certainly has a different flavour. Yeah, I think it certainly has a different flavour and it feels very much like a ghost story and then everything else sort of starts to move more into sort of urban fantasy territory. Yeah. While still, I, I wrote a, a recent review and I'll talk about that recent review and what I was reviewing uh, in a moment. Um, but <laughs> I wrote a recent review which, which sort of says a lot of sort of the Unveiled series has that element of that, that almost fae-like quality of something not quite there if that makes sense yeah so i think that you kind of maintain that regardless and to be honest there's a little bit of i mean in the last one as well there's a kind of a little bit of a possession thing going on as well in um i rule the night yeah. not in in the, well if you think about it you know there's that kind of that malevolence which sort of falls over edinburgh which starts to affect people it's a possessed city. Yeah, it is. It's a possessed city. So, like, I feel like you did you did sort of touch on that there. <laughs> I, I came full circle. And in yeah. fairness, it is mostly it's mostly ghosts all the way it through is. that series. Yeah, it is mostly ghosts. Mostly ghosts. Um, okay, so the the one I'm gonna <laughs> I have to do my Phil Rickman shout out here definitely, but the Mary Watkins series where. You have Merrily, who is a an Anglican priest, and mm -hmm. she becomes the diocesan exorcist or deliverance minister, as they prefer to call it, which mm. is how I know so much about this stuff. I learned it initially from this series and then went away and read about it. <laughs> and there are lots of cases of almost possession in that series where you can't quite be sure and momentary possession. Um, and, you know, it, it it's most noticeable in things like Midwinter of the Spirit, where you have that you have denzel joy denzel joy is based on a real person um it go away read the book and then read about what phil rickman's actually said about denzel joy this this was an account given to him by the nurses who looked after this particular person who you know on merrily's very first um deliverance ministry job she encounters Denzel Joy, who is probably about as close as you can get to a genuine human demonic possession and more right. like the real thing. And he is very, very disturbing. <laughs> um, as in genuine... Uh, not much really freaks me out, but that, that book genuinely <laughs> freaks me out. <laughs> and then okay. you have echoes of similar things happening in Crown of Lights, Cure of Souls, Friends of the Dusk, etc. It's a really brilliant series and... I think it deals with questions of religion versus genuine human evil really, really well. Okay. All right. I'm I'm really, really curious now. They're really I'm, great audiobooks, by the way. So, you know, if you prefer your your crime type drama in audio form, the audiobooks are very good. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Um well, <laughs> I feel like we've 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 kind of We've overrun a little bit. We've overrun just a tiny bit, but I feel like we've covered the subject well. Um, you know, in conclusion, this stuff is scary. 
this stuff is really scary. Um, the things that people have done in the name of possession is yeah, potentially honest, the scariest part. P- yeah, I agree. People assuming that it's possession and acting accordingly is, is almost more scary than, than a genuine entity possessing somebody. It's scarier than anything I've ever written. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It it does get under the skin, I think. Yeah. Um, but very, very interesting subject. And again, something, the idea of possession is something that both of us have touched on. I mean, it, it does appear in the sun, in, in the Hamartia cycle because, but it appears in very much that old Celtic. The Oracle of Delphi the, type the, way. The Oracle of it? Delphi yeah. type way, particularly for obviously for Rufus because he is a, um, you know, he's a child of Arimathea. He's a child of Atia. Um, which means that he's the vessel for Atia on on Earth, as it were. So he does occasionally get <laughs> possessed by her. Possessed. And she's not the best goddess to be possessed by. She I well, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, she's she's the goddess of a lot of big things, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, uh, but to be honest, I mean, I think being possessed by a part of a goddess in any respect <laughs> is is going to be quite quite a thing. Um, takes a toll on the system. Yeah, I think it does take a toll on the system. Um, so yeah, definitely we've done that, and it will be something which is sort of talked about in in Kestrel as well, because we do get the occasional demon who appears in Kestrel, <laughs> up to no good. Um, before we go though, it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week, and finally, finally, <laughs> Madeleine gets to recommend Harker and Blackthorn. Oh my god, I've been so excited for this. (laughs) So Harker and Blackthorn is obviously Jules's latest series. By the time this episode airs, the first two books will be out. So that's Slice of Death and Lock and Key. Um, Key being spelt Quay and Lock (laughs) being spelt Lock like Loch Ness because they go hunting for the Loch Ness monster. Oh, so exciting! I really, really love this series. Um, I've obviously had the privilege of being able to read advanced copies of it, um, but I believe actually that the third book for anyone listening to this will be out very soon. Yeah, uh, depending on I think probably about three weeks from when this episode airs, so you could have the first three books really quite quickly and basically five books will be published before Christmas that's as much as I'm willing to admit to at the moment yeah (laughs) now for anyone who doesn't know about this series um it is set in the same world as Unveiled um it follows uh Amy who's Emmeline's little sister um on her adventures it's it's about sort of 10 years later isn't it or something like that yeah about eight, eight and a half so amy's yeah. now 23 yeah um she's she's working at oxford university um and yeah it's it's very much got a kind of a different tone the nice thing about the series is that it can be enjoyed by people whether or not you've read unveiled so if you've not read unveiled and you're thinking i don't really want to kind of read any ya that's fine you can get straight into lock and key which is very much more of an adult urban fantasy it involves psychics and cryptids and i've got to say one of the kind of the biggest draws for me is that jules gets to 
Jules gets to sort of exercise her scientist muscles. Jules gets to go back on her back on her background as a scientist. Um which really, really has made the whole thing so much more interesting. Not because it's oh well, all all magic is just science kind of way, but because it, it offers this really nice kind of balanced perspective with these characters, one of which is all sort of like, yeah, wizards are real and I'm a psychic, and the other of which is no. <laughs> None of this is real. The characters are great. Fantastic found family. Also cryptids. And did I mention the Loch Ness monster in book two? Oh, fantastic. Really, really good. I love this series. Please go read it so that you can come and scream at me about it. And then scream at Jules, but like in a positive way. Or um, maybe not, depending on what you get invested <laughs> in. How long I make you wait for it. <laughs> yeah. So that's my recommendation. That's my recommendation of the week. Harker and Blackthorn, Slice of Death, first book, Lock and Key, uh, second book. Go check it out. Pre-order the third book if you haven't already. And for now, I'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>